Good morning to you, Christ Central. It's so good to be together, uh, especially as families and with our youth students today. This is a Thanksgiving Sunday, so we're just going to take one week break from the Gospel versus Religion series. If you have your Bibles, please turn to the book of 2 Kings, chapter 4, verses 32 to 37. It'll also be projected overhead. If you have your phones, please turn there as well. Okay, so chapter 4. Verses 32 to 37, I've entitled it, How Miracles Happen. Let me read this for us. When, El- when Elisha came into the house, he saw the child lying dead on his bed. So he went in and shut the door behind the two of them and prayed to the Lord. Then he went up and lay on the child, putting his mouth on his mouth, his eyes on his eyes, and his hands on his hands. And as he stretched himself upon him, the flesh of the child became warm. Then he got up again and walked once back and forth in the house and went up and stretched himself upon him. The child sneezed seven times and the child opened his eyes. Then he summoned Gehazi and said, call the Shunammite. So he called her. And when she came to him, he said, pick up your son. She came and fell at his feet, bowing to the ground. Then she picked up her son and went out. This is God's word. Thanks be to God for his word. How do miracles happen? How do miracles happen? That's what we're going to talk about today. Second, miracles happen to who? Third, how the greatest miracle happens. So just three questions. How miracles happen. Second, miracles happen to who? Third, how does the greatest miracle happen? First, the Bible... uh, The Bible tells us that so often miracles occur in unexpected ways and means through unexpected people. It happens in unexpected ways and means and unexpected people. Uh, Yesterday is a little bit of a mini miracle at our home. Sonny and I took away the phones for an entire day of our two teenage daughters. They survived. They're healthy and alive today. And I actually happened to find it as their dad, as we ran some errands and had some meals together. It was a really good Saturday where we didn't have that much to do. They were attentive. They were interactive. They seemed more alert and awake because they took a long nap. They slept better throughout the day. They just seemed more human. It was fantastic. And so some of the parents I would say out there, just hold out as long as you can with young kids. Do not give them that phone as long as you can. It was a really, really great day to interact with our daughters. I mean, back to the story here. How did this miracle happen? How did this occur? I do have to set up the context. Here's the story. Uh, Elisha was a mighty, mighty prophet of God. He was renowned, and there was a wealthy Shunammite woman. As he came into the town of Shunem... He uh, was noticed by her and recognized as a man of God, and she volunteered and insisted to feed him. And in fact, she took such a liking to him that she arranged and made a room in her house for whenever he came by, a room with furnishings. And so for this Shunammite woman's hospitality and kindness, the prophet asked her one day, what would you like in return? And she didn't really have a great answer. Gehazi, Elisha's servant, says, well, she does not have a child or a son. And so Elisha, the prophet, pronounces 
that in the following year you will give birth to a son. And I really like this Shunammite woman because she replies right back, do not lie to me. I like her. Because her husband was old, she was childless, she blurts out to the prophet, do not lie to me. And then in verse 20, we pick up and read before our passage that as a child has grown, he goes out into the field to work with his father, reaping, and then all of a sudden he starts to cry aloud, oh, my head, my head. And then verse 20 reads, the child sat on his mother's lap until noon, and then he died. The child born by miracle grew and then one day died. So his mother, the Shunammite woman, ordered her husband to get her a donkey along with their servant. They saddle up the donkey and they hurry toward Mount Carmel, which is the hangout of prophet Elisha. Seeing this woman's approach from possibly the top of the mountain, from that vantage point, Elisha orders his servant, Gehazi, to go down and greet her first and ask her, is everything well? How is your son? How is your husband? And then we pick up here at verses 27 to 31. It's crucial for us to know this context. I'll read it for us. And when she came to the mountain to the man of God, she caught hold of his feet. And Gehazi, the servant to Elisha, came to push her away. But the man of God said, leave her alone, for she is in bitter distress, and the Lord has hidden it from me and has not told me. Then she said, did I ask my Lord for a son? Did I not say, do not deceive me? He said to Gehazi, tie up your garment and take my staff in your hand and go. If you meet anyone, do not greet him. And if anyone greets you, do not reply and lay my staff on the face of the child. Then the mother of the child said, As the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So he arose and followed her. Gehazi went out ahead and laid the staff on the face of the child, but there was no sound or sign of life. Therefore he returned to meet him and told him, The child is not awakened. The child is not awakened. Uh, what principle, if any, can we learn about miracles by this point? What principle emerges? And I would say that miracles are not automatic. Miracles are not formulaic. Miracles cannot be performed on the spot. They're not guaranteed. Miracles are not under any human control. I mean, consider Gehazi once again, the personal assistant to this renowned, mighty prophet, miracle worker, Elisha. You'd figure if anyone was a prime candidate to perform a miracle here, it would be Gehazi. But the Shunammite woman, frantic and grieving and desperate as a mom, does not want Gehazi's help. In fact, she basically just ignores him. She just wants to get past him. To get to the feet of Elisha, which is why in verse 27, the Bible does not read like a fantasy or fables because it's very realistic and it actually gives embarrassing details about human characters. It said in verse 27, notice how Gehazi came to push her away. Why would he want to push her away? Well, because at the bottom of the mountain, when he was first sent out to greet her, she did dismiss him. 
And so Gehazi probably feels embarrassed or maybe offended by this point that she made it to the top and he doesn't look too good in front of his mentor, his boss, Elisha, that he could not solve this problem by himself. So he wants to push her away. But the Shunammite woman, no matter or not, whether she offends somebody, embarrasses somebody or not, she really needs to get to Elisha. Well, let's now consider Elisha then. He reveals in mitts up front, I can see she's in bitter distress. But the Lord has not revealed it to me. In other words, I don't know what I don't know. Even the prophet is saying, I don't know anything apart from or in addition to or ahead of what God tells me. So you see, look, the miracle worker, this prophet, is not omniscient. He doesn't have the exact same mind of God. Like he can't tell the future perfectly. He does not know. He can just observe what you and I deserve. Uh, observe. She's in bitter distress. Also, I pick up that Elisha is uh, not too perfectly wise or effective either. He sent Gehazi when he saw the approach of this distressed woman at the bottom of the mountain. That obviously didn't work because she bypassed him to get to the feet of Elisha. But now notice toward the end of this passage, verses 30 and 31, Elisha, for the second time, sends his servant Gehazi ahead to bring this dead son back to life. So Elisha is not omniscient. Elisha is not also perfectly wise. He's not even very practical. A third note on Elisha. He's not omnipotent. He's not omnipotent. You see, I can argue that Elisha at least believed in his power so much. Or that he could transfer his power by telling Gehazi, take my staff and just put it on the face of the child. Should work out. But verse 31 tells us, Gehazi returned to meet him, Elisha, and told him the child is not awakened. Abysmal failure. Fail. Didn't work. Meaning Elisha himself is not omnipotent. I mean, I know the story makes it sound like Gehazi is this bumbling kind of incompetent servant and he's the one that got it all wrong. No, I would say at the end of the day, this is on Elisha now, his mentor. Gehazi is sent twice by Elisha. The responsibility falls with Elisha who sends him twice and it just does not work. Question, do you know who knew better all along? Do you know who knew how dire of a situation this was and who knew what kind of solution it would take? Who's the one person left who knew better all along? It was the grieving mother. It's the Shunammite woman. Because in verse 30, she literally said to the prophet, I will not leave you. And then it says, Basically, he's kind of forced. He arose and followed her. He arose and followed her. So the miracle of resurrection here, on top of the miraculous birth of this boy, happens because of the persistent and proactive faith of the most unlikely person left, the Shunammite woman. 
The miracle of resurrection happens because of the proactive and persistent faith of the most unlikely person left. If we could show that slide, please. And notice how the Shunammite woman has to bypass and instruct all the men in her life. First, it was her husband who basically warned in the beginning, uh, you should not go bother these prophets only on certain opportune days. It's appropriate for you to go to Mount Carmel and seek them out. Even after his son has died, this is her husband. Then the Shunammite woman has to bypass Gehazi and then ultimately she meets the mighty man of God and the prophet of God and she uh, actually has to give him some instructions. How do miracles happen? Well, one answer from this story is it happens from unexpected people and unexpected ways and means and because of the persistent and proactive faith. Second question that we want to ask. Miracles happen to who? Who gets them? Who gets to experience miracles in their lives? You know, there's one Olympic sport that you know, like turns my stomach. It's that high platform diving. I'm afraid of heights and just makes me nauseous even thinking about it now. And they judge these Olympic divers, not just if they landed well, there's this one little category called degree of difficulty. Degree of difficulty. And I cannot even believe some of these guys, I can't believe they're doing what they're doing. The same can be said with miracles. There's a degree of difficulty to miracles. You can rank them. How does this one rank? A son has died. You need to bring him back to life. What's the degree of difficulty on this one? So how many times does this occur in the entirety of the Old Testament? You can count them on one hand. The miracle of resurrection, you can count on one hand. How many times does resurrection back from the dead occur in the New Testament? You only need one more hand. It's that rare. They're special. And the stunning part that I find is that almost always it is women who receive the dead back to life. It seems to be always that women are the ones who experience and receive the miracle of resurrection. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 35 reads, Women received back their dead by resurrection. The widow of Zarephath got her little boy back because of the prophet Elijah, the mentor to Elisha. In our passage, we read the Shunammite woman got her little boy back by Elisha. In the Gospel of John, Mary and Martha get their dead brother Lazarus back because of Jesus. It seems to be women who were the first witnesses and the only witnesses at dawn on Easter morning. And they find that the tomb, which was supposed to hold the dead body of Jesus Christ, empty. And an angel declaring, he is not here. He is risen. He is risen. It seems to be that the backbone of why anyone today gets to believe that Jesus rose from death is built and stacked on women 
Now, no sensible ancient author or leader or founder of a religion would ever make up including women as their first and most prominent witnesses for a fledgling movement unless this was true. Nobody in ancient society, I'm sorry to say, would stack up front that women would be your most bedrock, reliable, trustworthy witnesses. And you know, this is why the Church of Jesus Christ is a countercultural community. It's supposed to be a heavenly colony. You do know that the church is a group of people in which relationships occur that the world should be baffled by. So the Church of Jesus Christ is a group of people in which women are to be praised and honored and protected and preserved and adored better than anywhere else. The Church of Jesus Christ should never be a place where women are demeaned or diminished or told to go home or put in their place or taken advantage of or abused. No. Because the Bible tells us over and over and over again. It's the people on the outskirts. It's the apparently least likely, the ones without power. It's the ones who don't have pride or position. They're the first. They're always the first to get into contact with the miracles of God. Women, simply put, are the first ones in the scriptures to understand the difference between a God who gives power, which is grace, versus religion that's built on self-reliance. Women are the ones to first differentiate gospel versus religion. Because religion is about you. It's about self-empowerment, self-improvement. It's about living a better, healthier, richer, happier life based upon your own powers. But the gospel is about someone who brings about the miracle of salvation by losing all his powers. I say that again. Did you, did you, did you hear that? Did it, do you grasp this, my friend? Religion is about self-improvement, self-empowerment for you to reach your own self-ends and self-goals. The gospel at its essence is about worshiping and believing and following someone who lost all of his powers so that he could save sinners. The gospel in its essence is about someone who went down into humiliating defeat. He did not rise immediately in victory. So who would be attracted to a message like this? Why would anyone be attracted and want to follow Christ? I'll tell you who. It's people who feel like who don't have power. It's people who feel like they don't fit in. It's people who feel so out of it at school, they can't fit in. It's people who feel like they're in a dead-end family, a dead-end job. It's people who dread that you have to work and make money and make a living for the rest of your life. You just can't even stand this thought. You're always asking, what is the purpose and meaning of all that? That I got to go get a job and make money to pay off all these bills in this expensive place? You might be thinking this. I've got news for you. You might actually be attracted to the message of someone, someone who lost all his powers so that he can bring about a whole new purpose and power in your life. Those who have failed, those who have wailed and bawled, Those who know deep down in their hearts right now in your family, it is so not right. You've experienced pain. 
That's why Jesus came. The gospel is for you. And once in a while I get emails, and I got this less than a month ago, from someone who used to attend CCSE and now is uh, out of state. And he wrote this. I've reduced it, shortened it very much, but I'd like to just read some of it with you. Hi, Pastor Harold. You, you probably don't remember me because I briefly attended CCSE many years ago. But I do remember your kindness and your prayer during a difficult moment in my life. At that time, I was attending the church, but I was just merely a Sunday uh, uh, attendee. I was just merely a Sunday attendee. I did not know Jesus Christ personally. Looking back now, I now see that it was the hand of God that set in motion my prodigal return for his kingdom. UNCCSC was that very first step that I had to take. I'm still suffering through various issues and stress today, but I faithfully serve as a small group leader now and try to demonstrate the gospel in my life every day for his glory. Thank you, along with CCSE, for showing me Christ's love when I needed it the most. Please be encouraged that your faithfulness to the gospel even reaches people like me. All glory and praise be to God. And he closes and says, I will be and am praying for you, your church and your ministry. Uh, Here's what I find uh, as a pastor. Um, Miraculous turnarounds. People getting saved. Redemptions. Healings. They almost always happen to people who need them. They almost always happen to people who need them. And seek out. The mighty man and the mighty prophet of God. How do miracles generally happen? A persistent, proactive faith. They happen to who? The least likely, those who feel like they have no power. Here's third. Third question. How does the greatest miracle happen? How then does the greatest miracle happen? Some of you in this room, thank you for even paying attention, following along to this point. You're disinterested or maybe, quite frankly, kind of amused, right? This is a, it's kind of a crazy part, right, of these religious services that go on that these people are talking about miracles. and you're, you're just, You just can't believe, right? You're beside yourself, right? We believe in a, a virgin incarnational birth and God made everything out of nothing and someone rose from death. And uh, you might be a little amused, right, that... People today still believe in miracles, like these Christian people believe in miracles. Uh, I would just submit this to you, though. Whether you don't believe in them or not today, I think there is going to come a day that you're going to want a miracle to happen. You're going to wish these are true. Someday, everyone deep down in their hearts is going to wish There could be life after death. This is why Ernest Becker, who's not a Christian believer, wrote in the book, The Denial of Death, quote, I think taking life seriously means that whatever you do must be done in the lived truth of the evil and terror of life, of the rumble of panic underneath everything. Otherwise, it's phony. That's right. Otherwise, it's phony. You see... A hundred years from now, exactly 100 years, most everyone in this room, maybe one or two of you, but everyone else in this room, 100 years, you're going to be six foot under, you're going to be thrown out at sea. 
Doesn't matter how smart you are. Doesn't matter how popular you were. Doesn't matter if you were depressed or happy. Doesn't matter how long or how good you worked out. It just won't matter. And it is phony to live your life without thinking how it ends. It is phony to live the rest of your life without living it backwards, so to speak. I think everyone's going to want a miracle to happen someday. As your staff in session, we have the utter privilege and joy to pray for you. Any prayer request you submit to our office, we pray for you by name. If you want it confidential, we keep it confidential. We pray for you at least weekly, but we pray for you regularly, individually. There are congregation members here that we hold you in our hearts. And we are walking with you in prayer. And in prayer, there is the presence of God and angels and supernatural things that we can never decipher that come to your aid and help you in ways that without which you would not make it. This is to be sure true. And I've got fellow pastors right now just a little older than me that went into these major surgeries and they're having complications and they're on their deathbed right now. We've set up a prayer chain for two, two, two pastor friends of mine. You know, also on this Friday morning, gotten the permission from a friend of mine where there was a, a, just a tragic car accident that happened on Harvard Boulevard right near UC Irvine. I know you read or heard about this. There were four students in that car. The car crashed into trees so hard it looked like it exploded on fire. Three died on the spot. One is right now clinging to life. I cannot imagine what the parents are going through. And I cannot imagine what the church is going through. Because all four students, according to Pastor Justin, they attended Bethel Church in Irvine. And I ask you to pray for them and to cover them in prayer. Back to the story. Elisha is urged, basically forced, by the Shunammite woman to go back to the house, to go into the room where her son lay dead. And how does he raise him? How does he perform the miracle? Verses 32 to 35, we read once again. So he went in and shut the door behind the two of them and prayed to the Lord. Then he went up and lay on the child, putting his mouth on his mouth, his eyes on his eyes and his hands on his hands. And as he stretched himself upon him, the flesh of the child became warm. Then he got up again and walked once back and forth in the house and went up and stretched himself upon him. The child sneezed seven times and the child opened his eyes. The child came back to life. How did Elisha do it? He went mouth to mouth, eye to eye, hand to hand. And this is exactly what the Bible asks you to do with Jesus. Who will not just resuscitate you and give you a little bit of a longer life, but will give you a new and never ending life. That's the greatest miracle. You got to go mouth to mouth, eye to eye, and hand to hand with him. 
how does a new, resurrected, never-ending life start flooding into your present life and into the next life, which will never end with him? You must go mouth to mouth, eye to eye, and hand to hand. Picture it with me. Elisha the prophet lays and stretches himself upon this little boy. From an aerial point of view, or you know, from a drone, okay, a drone's point of view, if you look down upon this scene, all you would see was Elisha. You couldn't see the boy. The prophet Elisha, a full-grown man, is covering the boy. And that is a picture of our salvation. Because when you call and need Jesus to completely cover you, when God looks down upon you, when you pray, Jesus, come into my life, breathe new life into me, when God looks down at you, he doesn't see you. He doesn't see Harold. He sees Jesus. He only sees Jesus. And you get the righteous record. You get the resurrection power. And you get the reward that Jesus gets. This is why in Colossians chapter 3 it says, For all Christian believers, your life is hidden with God in Christ. Hidden. That does not mean you disappear. Your personality changes overnight. No, it means that Jesus fully covers you. And you are forgiven and you are loved. You are saved. To become a Christian is simply to pray to Jesus. Lord Jesus, breathe new life into me. I confess and admit everything that I've done. I want to get everything you've done. Come into my life and take over. And there, resurrection, power, the miracle will enter your life. That's what you and I get. But I'd like to just end with one more question. What does Jesus get? What did Jesus get? Well, the Gospels tell me what Jesus got. Um, His mouth was silenced and he was ridiculed and mocked because of filthy mouths like mine. What happened to his eyes? Well, the Bible frequently tells us they were blurred, they faded, they wept unto death. Because of impure eyes like mine. What happened to his hands? He gives you his hands. But his hands got crucified and nailed upon a tree. Because of all the blood on mine. I'll put it this way. You know what Jesus got? It's like he got to kiss a corpse. It's like he got to kiss and breathe in a rotting, worm infested, foul smelling corpse. And he died to bring about a new and never-ending life in you. Mouth to mouth, eye to eye, hand to hand. When you do this with Jesus in prayer by faith, the greatest miracle happens to you. But let me just suggest one more thing. I actually think this is the greatest miracle that happened to him. I am wary to conjecture and put words into the mouth of Jesus. But as far as my understanding and the record of the scriptures tells me is this. If you ask Jesus, what's the greatest thing or greatest miracle that could ever occur to you? I do think he would say something like this. 
that I could have you. That I could have you back from the dead. That a mother could have a son back from the dead. That a father could get his daughter back. Oh, I dare say that the greatest miracle that moves even the heart of Jesus Christ is that he went mouth to mouth, eye to eye, and hand to hand with you to get you forever. This is why the late and great professor Ed Clowney, he said, he and I in that bright glory, one deep joy will share, mine to be forever with him, his that I am there. One deep joy will share, mine to be forever with him, his that I am there. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the miracle. Indeed, it is a miracle of the boy coming back to life by the hand of Elisha, of Jesus Christ, your son, coming out of the grave, conquering sin, shame, and the evil one, and putting death to death. Lord, I do pray now as we come to the table that you would work your miraculous power and love by your spirit so that those hearts that are still not alive, might be awakened. And those right now who are so in need of your touch, we might be able to receive and feel it now by faith. Hear us, we pray. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.